This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I am pinging off the walls with excitement to bring you a special double episode. First one today, next one tomorrow. Uh, The first with Andy Nyman and the second with Jeremy Dyson, who you will know as the invisible fourth member of the League of Gentlemen. Now, Andy, you might know uh, as an actor from campus, you might know him from Dead Set, Uh, You might know him from a variety of things. You might, if you are magically inclined, you might know him as the silent partner uh, behind, well, not behind, adjacent to, in the curtains, next to Darren Brown. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Uh, This is in celebration of the release of their new movie, Ghost Stories, which I have seen, and it is excellent. So we're going to be talking to both of these gentlemen today and tomorrow about the connections, the deep physical and rhythmic connections between performative and narrative comedy and performative and narrative horror. So it's a bit of a genre-bending one. I think this made for some really good com-com material, and uh, and it's also, I, I hope, serves to whet your appetite for the movie, which is released any day now. So please, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Andy Nyman. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to join you, though I feel like a total charlatan because I'm not a comedian. Well, you say that. I mean, we, we'll start with Ghost Stories, which I watched a screener of a few days ago. Yes. And it's so funny and so horrifying. Now, I don't normally work with people who've got a movie about to come out, and obviously there is, like, we, I don't want to spoil... Yes, no uh, spoilers. The ending, absolutely. No spoilers, yeah. But I'm sure we can, and pick me up if I accidentally say anything along the way. Yeah, I'll make you cut anything out. Exactly right. Anything. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, um, so with that in mind, let's just start by talking about the, the use of comedy yeah. in horror. Okay. I think it's a really interesting... I think there are really big parallels between comedy and horror. And... I think what the, there's a few that are really key. The first is the cre- the critical response to both of them. I'm talking about films as opposed to comics. Tends to be sniffy to comedy and horror. And I've thought long and hard about that over the years because the other thing that's interesting is cinema's only 100-odd years old. The two things that have consistently remained and consistently made money throughout its life are comedy and horror. They are the two constants, irrespective of what else is happening within. And ironically, they're also the things that people are snobbiest about, especially the critics. Because they're kind of perceived as low art. Well, they are. Well, a lot of the time. And I think a given that a lot of it is crap. But to me, what's really interesting is one of the reasons that, that it is potentially critics are sniffy about them is they're taken out of the equation because thank you that's my tea getting put down by some slave girl I don't know who she is um, because both comedy and horror when they work when a, when a laugh comes or a scare comes your brain is disconnected it's not about a cerebral response it is about a gut reaction well that means that someone's opinion about whether it doesn't matter, it's of no, it's no, it's of no importance suddenly because 
bang, it's out there and it's done, you know, for an audience. And both comedy and horror also have great followings so that if someone says to you, oh, God, you've got to go see that, it's hilarious. I mean, it's properly, properly funny. Or, oh, God, you've got to go and see that. There is one, to horror fans in particular, if someone said to you, look, the film is a piece of shit, but there's one jump in it that were, it's just amazing, go see it. You'd go see it. Because that's part of what your experience is. You want that. That's why, that's why you're in it. So I think that, that that's one of the first interesting parallels is critically they're not the favourite. And they both have this non-cerebral thing. That doesn't mean that they're not also deeply cerebral and deeply clever. And then the other thing is that the rhythm of them is so similar because the rhythm of a jump and the rhythm of a joke are sort of the same. You know, that, that you've got a setup and a punchline, basically, on, you know. So they're really comfortable bedfellows because they both offer a release. And then within comedy and horror, there's lots of different types. There's sort of schlocky, silly stuff, and then there's stuff that's somewhere between the two. The, the, the one that was a template for us, really, in terms of our taste, was American Werewolf, because what Landis did in that is amazing, is that the horror... And the, the comedy is absolutely real. So there's no shtick and there's no gags per se. All the comedy comes out of, you know, real situations and real moments. And that's what we try to do with ghost stories. That's where myself and Jeremy um, Dyson's taste is really, is that it's not, they're not, it's not silly horror where there's sort of daft things happening. The, the, the gags come out of, or the, 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 the laughs come out of the sort of real situations. So that's when it's satisfying. And you can also, sorry, I'm rambling, but you can also use that as a great release. You know, it's all, it's a very useful tool as well, comedy, um, because it's a great, the, the rhythm can really help you because you can go ba 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 da 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 tension, 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 laugh, relax, bang! Yes, yes, because is there, is there also, is there like a rule of three equivalent? in horror, where you, you do it once to, because there's a thing, and then s s twice to establish a rhythm. Yeah. And then the third time breaks the, th the yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there can be, yeah. I mean, the rule of three is such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it seems to run across absolutely everything. Everything. I'm very involved in the magic world as well, and rule of three is also absolutely part and parcel of that. So it seems to be, all, it's almost something in our DNA, that makes that work. There's something mystical about the three that that's so it to me it's not it's not so much about set up once, set up twice, set up reveal. It's just about it's useful in terms of establishing stuff, you know, so you can hint at something once, hint at something twice, and allow your audience to have done the maths on it now. And then the third time it's there, that you know, it it pays off. So I think it definitely works in well, look, it clearly works in comedy, we all know that. And then it seems to work in horror slash drama as well. Do you find that there's, as, as a comic watching comedy, it's easy to, it's easy after a while, after years of doing it, to spot the rhythms. So it's always more delightful when you, when the rug is pulled from under yes. one's, one's own feet because, you know, you're, one is familiar with the territory and expecting things. Yeah. And um, something I noticed that you do really well in ghost stories is that thing of an apparent an apparent payoff, an apparent jump, yeah. and then a beat, and then the actual jump. Yeah. Do you find watching horror as, as a, a person who is kind of entrenched in, in that world, in the world of rhythm, and the world of misdirection, yeah. 
does it take more to scare you? Well, in the way that I would suggest you would watch comedy, which is, you know, if you can set your ego, and I don't mean you specifically, but if one can set one's ego and jealousies aside, what you want is to go see a comedian who's going to tear the fucking roof off and make you ache with laughter. Well, that's the same when you go to a hor- when if you love horror and you see a horror film. You want to, I want to be properly scared and I want to ideally have a couple of jump moments that are going to make me just, oh my God, you know. The irony is as well, if I'm in that situation, I'll sit there and think, why am I watching this? Why am I watching this? I don't enjoy it slash I love it. Um, so I really I'm, I'm interested re- to hear that other people have that I always think oh. why am I doing this I didn't realise that was a universal experience oh I totally <laughs> have that that's the thing I chase uh, you chase that thing of why the hell am I watching this you know and um, so I think it's I, I don't know really I mean it, you definitely get to watch stuff that you think yeah yeah but you know it's like as an actor when you get a script sent to you you know in a page whether it's any good or not. You just know. You can tell from the right. You just, you know, within two pages, you know, oh, fuck this right, it's terrible. And you know that most of the time. You know, if you, I mean, one of the terrible things about Netflix, but one of the joys of Netflix, is you can start a film in four minutes and you're like, ugh, I'm done with this. Yeah. You know. It increases the, the speed through which you allow yourself to go, no, next. It's terrible. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it's awful. You know, whereas if you'd paid and gone to the cinema, you might give it a go, yeah, it wasn't brilliant, but I enjoyed it. Whereas this, you're like, no, fuck that. Let's watch something else. No. There might be ramifications for that as well in terms of someone who's into misdirection of one sort or yeah. another. That you need to set up. If, if a film wants to... Like, if you look at Cabin in the Woods, yeah. it's a particular type of film yes. for a while. And then it but isn't. even if you know... When you start that film, it's not about... I'm bored of the subject. I'm bored. It's about the craft of how it's made. So Cabin in the Woods, you watch and you know, oh, I'm in safe hands. I, Absolutely. I, I know, I know, I don't know what's happening. And this feels sort of like I've seen it before, but there's something that Something's keeps off. you hooked. Yeah, something, that's, that's <clears throat> so, set up of the people yeah. going to the cabin. You think, hang on a minute, this is, it's hyper real almost. Yeah. And that's the same with Netflix. I mean, there are a million you know, especially with horror, it's amazing. You know, you can sit and watch things you've never heard of. And I, you know, will often do that and then turn it off and do that. But then you'll find things that you think, oh, bloody hell, what's, that was amazing. You know. I think the last time, sorry to interrupt you. I was just just relishing the memory of the last thing that surprised me horror-wise. Have you seen Triangle? Chris Smith's Triangle. Uh, On the boat. On the boat. Yeah. Gee, God. great. I love a time loop, and that does something completely different. Oh, yeah, it's great. Well, Chris Smith, I've I've done two films with Chris. I did Severance and um, Black Death. Chris is amazing. He's a brilliant director and writer. Really clever, really undervalued, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoy about those sorts of films, ghost stories as well, with its kind of, with the structure about which I won't say more. um, We're allowed to say it's about... Um, a paranormal debunker called Professor Philip Goodman played by a brilliant actor called Andy Nyman (laughs) you're allowed positively encouraged to say say that that. Uh, who is given three cases unsolved cases by his old mentor and is told solve these if you dare and those he then goes off and and tries to debunk these three cases and the three cases are three individual stories with Martin Freeman um, Paul Whitehouse and Alex Lawther That's as much as you get. 
So this is Andy. Now, listen, I don't talk to many people who are in movies. Uh, I hope I get to talk to more of them. But it's fascinating hearing Andy. I'm sure you can pick up on it. I'm trying to pull him in ways that are, you know, I'm trying to talk about uh, the stuff that I want to talk about. And I noticed during this interview, I really enjoyed this particular, many elements of it, but particularly the way I really observed his professionalism in pulling things back to the topic in hand, to wit, the movie, which I have seen, as you know, and I genuinely really enjoy one of the uh, great joys of interviewing someone is when there is not not necessarily a Stuart Francis level of cut and thrust, and do listen to that episode from the archives if you're keen to know what I mean, but sometimes it's really, I, I really feel like there's something I want to get, or a couple of things I want to get, and there's a couple of things a couple of things my guest wants, and it's really fun having an extremely gentlemanly tussle over those things. So I, I really enjoyed uh, that aspect of uh, this conversation, and um, there's plenty more of that to come. And remember, uh, the day after this is released, we're going to be doing something similar but completely different with Jeremy Dyson from the League of Gentlemen. And uh, there are some shocking revelations in that one about the new League of Gentlemen live show, which is touring Christnow, selling out arenas later this year. There's some, there is a, a one particular fact about that that absolutely dropped my jaw. So we'll get onto that soon. Before we get back into this conversation, two things to remind you, as ever, my own tour, uh, all of that information is at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. If you're interested in coming to see my show, Like I Mean It, which is in the kind of the middle third of my national tour, 40 dates all over the UK, and uh, it is something of which I am extraordinarily proud. It's my best show yet. Uh, the reviewers at the Edinburgh Festival agreed, and I've been having some lovely feedback from those of you who've come to the recent shows there. Um, Nottingham was most recent, and what I do in that show is the hour show, and then we have a break, and if that'll do you, that'll do you, but 99% of people come back for the second half, which is a workshop of new material. And um, I did a gig last night at the Lazy Dog in Bristol, which is an excellent gig run by Tony Quixote, who is someone you might remember me talking about. He arrived from Portland, Oregon, specifically to go to the Secret Welsh Festival, specifically on the recommendation of this podcast. He now lives in the UK and uh, runs this lovely gig at the Lazy Dog in Bristol. And I did a show there last night, like a 20 minutes of new stuff at the top and really felt like all of these second half workshops have been working. I've, I've felt so excited and powerful and uh, like, oh, I mean, this is the stuff I'd normally get to in the post amble, so maybe we'll do it then. But that's a great gig. I had a great time. And if you'd like to come and see the very well-reviewed and exciting first half, and then the very flappy and workshop-like and frustratingly often better second half, all of your details are at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. Now, something is happening in the ether. There are, there are eddies in the space-time continuum, um, and that is possibly from Hitchhikers and possibly from something else. So I remember the answer being Izzy. That sounds quite an Arthur Dent thing to say. Um, but in terms of... I've got this big idea about the membership of this podcast. I've got a big idea about getting drawing certain of you even closer to the podcast, even closer to my process, even closer to extra kind of cutting room floor bits of material from the various conversations I have on the show, and closer to something a lot of people have been asking about, which is mentorship. Now, I don't have the time or resources or... I mean, I also wouldn't put myself at that kind of, well, I'll mentor you kind of place. I mean, I, I guess I know a bit about comedy these days, 
But um, there are some developments on that front. And the first people who will be made aware of those developments are anyone who is routinely subscribing with a donation to this show. So if you would like to join their number, you can do that via PayPal or Moonclerk or indeed Patreon. And you can do all of those things at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. If you're someone who's been listening for a while and always meant to get round to it, there's quite genuinely never been a better time. So that'll do me for now. I'll chat to you in a little postamble afterwards. Now let's get back to the brilliant and I mean it's worth checking the the picture uh, accompanying this podcast just to see just how huge and classy and huge his glasses are, Mr. Andy Nyman. <laughs> So in terms of those explosive moments yes. of, you know, when the jump or the laugh or the moment is is uh, kind of the, the sort of thing you would immediately text someone about, you know, that <laughs> yes. like you walk out and like, I have got to tell so-and-so about yes. One of the, the televisual moments like that that I will remember forever was uh, something for which you were jointly responsible was Russian Roulette oh, with Darren yes. Brown. And I remember, I was an actor at the time in uh, Lancaster, and I remember watching it with my landlady, in the sense of, a, you know, a theatrical yeah. landlady at my digs. And halfway through, we realised we were clutching each other. We didn't know each other that way. It was quite early on in the run. And we were clutching each other. One of the things that I found so exciting about that was that even if you didn't believe in it, it still worked. Yeah. Even if you thought, well, obviously, he's walked off screen there and he knows which chamber it's in. Yes. It still worked. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because it's one of my favourite things ever. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and your, your work with Darren as a kind of, as a, the person not in the limelight, as I had a listener question which I will read because it's very well uh, phrased. Yes. Um, does Andy think there's any similarities in the structure of a joke and the structure of a magic trick? Also, does he feel like it's cooler being Bernie than Elton John? <laughs> <laughs> so, is there a similarity between the structure of a magic trick and a joke? Yes. But there's a struct that you know. It, it, there's a similarity between between the structure of a magic trick and absolutely everything because it's just a story. So it's, you know, you've got a beginning at its basis level. The beginning, choose a card. The middle, sign it, put it back, shuffle it. You do it. I won't touch them. The end. The reveal. Go through the cards. It's vanished. It's now on the ceiling. So it's just a story. And what, you know, where magic's amazing is the story, if you get the story right, is also about taking the world and the properties of the world that we see day in, day out and warping them. But that's also the same as a story. You know, the same as a, a great story will make you look at the world through different, with a different filter, you know. So... I think there is huge similarities. Is it cooler being Bernie than Elton? I don't know really. I'm not... It's a strange one, that, because my life, my career, my biggest passion is acting. Always has been. So, I mean, the story behind the me and Darren thing um, is well documented now, but I was offered that they wanted me to be that person. I just got this phone call out of the blue because I'd been doing mentalism within the magic world I was sort of quite a big fish in, a, in that small pond and there, there wasn't there weren't really anybody doing the sort of I had just the sort of 
an actor's take really on it, a sort of slightly edgy, modern, streety sort of take on it. That was and, in... and charismatic, which is something yeah. that in my experience of magicians, yeah. a lot of people, the, the price you pay for the technical expertise is yes. staying inside and practicing autism. Rather, yeah. than learning, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. rather than learning charisma and eye contact yeah. and dealing with yeah. humans. Well, that's kind of me to say thank you. So, but but I guess I would say that that they were sort of actors' skills, really, and, and how comfortable I felt with an audience and with myself, really. Um, so, I got this phone call out of the blue saying we want to offer you a one-hour special on Channel Four, um, doing mind reading magic, and I said no, I'm not remotely interested. And it's kind of you, but I'm an actor, and that's what I love. They said, oh, let's go for lunch and talk about it. And I was an out-of-work actor, married with one child at that time and uh and they said look we think it's going to be five years probably be a five-year deal and it'll be this sort of money and it was a lot of money especially when you're an out-of-work actor with no money i was i don't want to interrupt the flow but what out-of-work actor doesn't say yes sign me up immediately well i guess an out-of-work actor and again i don't mean this in the back patty way but The goal is to be happy. That's it. That's the only goal. We are blessed by having a pursuit that makes us happy, slash makes us unbearably miserable, slash frustrated, raging. Why would you sell that? Because someone's offering you a fast track somewhere else, you know? And everyone has their own agendas and everyone has their own way of doing things. To me, I mean, I just didn't even think about it. It's just like, no, I'm not interested. But I'll write for whoever you find or direct whoever you find. And, you know, also I'm blessed with having an amazing wife who feels the same way. All we care about is being happy. And we'll manage, you know, we'll pay the bills some way. And I was going out and doing magic gigs and voiceovers and acting when that came up. My career was very, very different as an actor then, very different, you know. And um, so so then, I mean, they thought I was insane. As I think to some people now who still sort of think, oh, you must regret it because you're not famous, but Darren's you. I mean, people think that's the goal. Mm. It's so warped. Um, so then, I don't know that it's cooler because I can't identify what that means, really. I'm not being clever. I just... I, where it has been... I can't think that my life could be nicer, my career could be nicer, because working with Darren... I've worked with Darren for 20 years now. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Darren is remarkable. He's a remarkable thinker, performer, bloke. He's gorgeous and funny and brilliant at what he does. But without Darren, and without working on Darren, and without creating that amount of stuff with him, the two of us together, and then latterly with Andrew O'Connor, who works with us as well. I would never have had the knowledge or the courage to have created ghost stories with Jeremy, to have written that together, and then the knowledge and the courage to think, oh, we'll direct a film, we'll just, we'll just do that. Because, you know, you're just working all the time on that stuff with Darren and did a huge amount of sitting in edits and a huge amount of creating and also learning that what the process is, which is fucking bleeding from the eyes, trying to come up with ideas. 
and there's no fast track. There's no, there's, there's no easy way. And sometimes you'll suddenly, you know, writing the stage. I haven't done the telly for about 10 years. So the last piece of TV I created with Darren was um, the lottery prediction. So I did the first 10 years. So I did everything up until then. And then after that, I just do the stage shows because I'm, I can't really. I'm too busy with acting and other stuff. But it's joy. It's some of the some of the funnest things that I do. But what's amazing is, I guess it's the same as if you're writing or working on a comedy set. You'll get together for, you know, with your blank sheet of paper knowing eight weeks from now you're at Blackpool to 3,000 people and we've got to write a show. What the fuck are we going to do? And you say, well, how about if we, end, you know, we could do that and a sentence will come out in your mouth. You're like, okay, well, that's the finale. We've worked that out, yeah. you know, and then the rest of it is wading through treacle and staring at each other in silence. You know, sometimes there are moments that just explode. And you're this like, is very like comedy. <laughs> it is. It's the same thing, you know, and it's all in your head thinking, well, that would probably work. I'm sure that would be good. And then you get it out in front of an audience and it's not quite as good as I thought it would be or it's better than I thought it would be or maybe if we don't say that, we say that. And maybe if we do this and that. And... Are, there, are there systems that you use? Are there habits that you have to get yourself out of a a creative dry period or a moment like you said when, when you find yourself staring into each other's eyes in silence and, and you've got you've kind of got one up on a lot of comics there in that you have a partner to share it with oh collaborating's the best it's the best I've only ever worked in collaborations you know I've two I've had two collaborations in my life one with Darren one with Jeremy Jeremy's my oldest friend we've been best mates since we were 15 met at Jewish summer camp and Darren you know 20 years of getting thrown together to see, do we make each other laugh? Can we work together? And there's an amazing thing with a collaboration, which is if you find the right person, you can't imagine why other people resist it. Um, because, I mean, the analogy I make a lot with it is it's like a Ouija board. You know, when you've got people, hands on top of a glass, mm. and that glass is moving around the table, and you know you're not pushing it, and they know they're not pushing it, and yet this thing is moving. And that's when a collaboration's at its best, is that you both feel, how did, was that your suggestion? Was it yes. my, I don't know where that came from. And part of that process is you both got to try and lay your egos aside and not claim ideas um, because it's all part of whatever that, creative processes and that's I mean never was that truer than in the fil filming because you're surrounded by people and you want ideas from everybody and the same was with the producers on the film you know we never had a bad note every single note we got from the producers made the film better now that doesn't mean that every one of them was a good idea but every one of those notes when you worked on it and dug into it either made you go no no what we've got's better. So or, that it improved the film through being something that you could work in opposition to? Uh, yes, and or... It was just a better idea. Better idea. You know. You know, there was one key moment where we were quite a way down the line of the film and we'd screened it for all the producers. <clears throat> and the way we did it was we'd then all go with the producers back to... Um, 
altitude or our sales agent. We are a sales agent. So we go back to their office around a table and then altitude, catalyst, warp would all pitch in with their thoughts and notes. And it was a, no one was dick swinging. It was all just these are what we think. And there was one keynote where everybody felt the same about it. They all felt this really isn't working for us. We think it's really good, but this isn't working for us. And then someone else, yeah, that's not, that really takes me out of it. And that was a really hard note to hear. Can you can you tell me or allude to um, more specifically what it was without... Uh, well, it was about, it was... It was sort of about my character's journey. Okay. Um, and yeah, I can talk about it actually. What it was in a way was one of the things, uh, for those who don't know, Ghost Stories is um, a portmanteau film. So you have someone taking, you know, there's these three cases and in the play what would happen is you'd, you'd finish the short story or each case and you'd come back to the main character, you'd come back to Goodman who would sum up and then you'd go on to the next story. And that's the way portmanteau films traditionally sort of work. And that's what was happening in the film. And in the film, what would happen is you'd come back to Goodman in his office and he'd talk about that. And then you'd introduce the next story. <clears throat> and it became clear that each time that happened, it brought them out of the film. Yes. It broke. It broke. Because the there were already several the layers yes. going on. And the motif at the very beginning of, of Goodman's experience, kind of arresting yes. the, the, perform, the mentalist performer. Yeah, yeah. That kind of set, like we were three minutes in, I watched it with some friends and yeah. we were three minutes in and we went, there are like five layers happening there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. absolutely. Every time you go back, it kind of reminds yes. people of the layered quality. And what was interesting was, you know, we heard that and it was a really tough note to hear because, but they all felt it. And there's another, there's a funny old whether it's actually a cowboy expression or something that's been adopted as a cowboy expression, but there's a, there's a saying that is, if five people call a horse a horse, you better saddle up and ride. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'd love to believe that's actually what I, I said. <laughs> so, but then you have, so then me and Jeremy went away and talked about, well, what, what could we try and fix it? Because no one was saying, you have to change that. But they're saying, this is what we all think. And of course, what's brilliant is, I'm not saying we've fixed it and our show, our film is now this perfect masterpiece, but they definitely made it better because we went away and thought about what could we do and we ended up finding something that was like, oh, that's great. But it was also about letting go of the stage show. Yes. And that was Which a, had been a huge success yeah. and a kind of provable success. Yes. To the extent that I imagine when you were pitching the movie, you didn't need an elevator pitch beyond... This is a massive success on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mean here are all the people who think it's incredible? Yeah. But we knew we had to rewrite it and we knew we had to change it because, because the version that we had, um, initially our first couple of drafts were, were still quite married to the stage show. And we realised actually that ultimately what that note was about was properly letting go of the stage show structure. Was that scary? Yeah, of course. But now I look at it with huge pride because what's really exciting is they both live in their own world so if you're a fan of the play and you come and see the film whilst it's exactly the same it's completely different and there are it's a very different tone and it's a very different journey and if you're a fan of the film please god and the play comes back at some point and you think oh, i'd love to see how they do it on step and it's a 
completely different. There are lots of things in the play that aren't in the film and lots of things in the film that aren't in the play. And it's a really, that's really exciting because it still feels like it's part of the same family, but they're different, they're different beasts. Uh, and in, but I've often found that as an actor. I never understand why actors are resistant to direction because I often think that that's where you find your best work is when you give in to someone else's idea and someone else's thinking because we tend to be, as creatives, so self-sufficient because you have to be. Because ultimately, you know, you're if you're writing your own comedy and going out there short of listening to the audience and changing it to that which you will be doing but ultimately it's down to your taste and your sensibility but you also only have your bag of tricks you've only got your 12 things that you constantly rely on well that's the same if you're an actor and that's the same if you're a writer so it's fantastic to have people to have a director say maybe let's think about that or try this. And I look at my performances in things and the moments that excite me the most are where I've where it doesn't feel like my thought. Where it's someone else who's gone. So that's great. But Darren's manager, Michael Vine, has got an amazing saying as well, which is everybody's entitled to have an opinion. I just don't have to fucking listen to it. <laughs> which is also great because you've got to pick who you listen to. Yes. Because everybody's got an opinion, especially on Twitter. Everyone's a critic. Everybody's a critic. And everybody knows best, including me. You know, that's the problem. Everybody knows best. So you have to really choose who you listen to. In terms of your... Your creative process in those two collaborations, those two kind of lifelong yeah. almost collaborations, I suppose I saw you as less of a writer and more a kind of a, I don't know what the word is, like an engineer. Yeah. In terms of your work with, with Darren, I don't know how yes. much of the script you wrote, I, I had presumed that your role was more like a magic technician. I've worked with some people that I, I did I did TV warm-up for Philip Escoffi's show yeah and uh, one of his kind of magic consultants and I became friendly and I assume it was a similar sort of relationship you've got the figurehead and then behind the scenes you've got a writer slash yeah kind of engineer saying do that now try that well, before that bit with Darren it's very different really initially on, on the very first Darren show I was very very heavily involved with the scripting that with literally writing the script and what to say and then working on Darren's performance and then I did much less of that on the second TV show and much more about coming up with the routines with Darren and the ideas of what they would be and the themes behind them as well as the sort of nuts and bolts of how you achieve those and then by the time we got to sort of the third special I mean this is going back 18 years or whatever I wasn't really writing any of the script, the actual words, um, other than sort of listen to it and be like, mm, this doesn't, that feels too wordy, or this doesn't feel right, or this or that. And then you're sort of giving script notes and ideas. In terms of being the sort of engineer, yes and no, really, because I think the way Darren and I work's quite unique and quite different to any other sort of magic collaborators or consultants, really. I was going to say, I don't even know what the term for that is. Well, like it tends to be a sort of, sort of 
creative consultant, sure. or, you know. Because we, you know, a bit like Jeremy as well. It's like you're two halves of the same beast, really. Because you think in such similar ways, and that your sensibilities tend to be so similar. What's interesting with Darren is Darren's taste or Darren's thinking has always been cutting edge. So Darren was always thinking in ways that would just turn the magic world upside down really now lots of people have taken his thinking slash stolen his routines and my mm. routines and just used them like oh that's fine <laughs> i mean it's just fucking bizarre within magic that people do that yeah and uh, i mean is that the is that the cost it's almost like as a comic you write a joke you see it be stolen or become stock do you know what I mean in that same way yeah, yeah. Do you know what i mean that you come oh, up with a it's thing it's ridiculous it's ridiculous part of you i mean is part of you proud to have written no. something good enough to steal or you're no. just angry about it no not proud i, I mean i look you know i've i've tried to make peace with it over the years sure. but it's absolutely remarkable to me that people te- just take the ideas or the script or the performance style just copy it literally copy it anyway um, we can go there if you like because I think your word choice is quite interesting that you said it's remarkable I was expecting you to say infuriating well it is infuriating but it amazes me because it's on the one hand you look at it and think there's a great compliment in it which is what's been created you know when you think prior to, to Darren mind reading in inverted commas mentalism was think of it my fingers go to my forehead I look at you I'm picking up your thought you're thinking of Paris, was about as far as it went. You know, what was then presented, what, what this thing Darren has become, was, was feels so obvious and so organic and so real, uh, because a lot of what Darren does is real and organic. But nevertheless, you know, within that, there is magic trickery, of course. It feels like that is the only way to do it now. So people find it very hard, magicians find it very hard to come up with anything else. What's amazing to me is when they literally steal stuff and believe that's their own material because, or their own way of doing it, because they're wearing a green jacket, yeah. not a brown one. <laughs> yeah, I used to be a street performer, and that is very much how it works. Like, yeah. oh, no, but when I do it, I'm wearing a hat. Yeah. Oh, sure. sure. I, oh, no, I see. It's completely different then. Anyway, but let's not get down, bogged into that. So, but yeah, I do. So I find it. But also, the worst part of it is... They're killing themselves. They're cutting their own throats because they're only going to be not as good as Darren and they're suffocating their own ability to find who they are and to find their own brilliant way of doing it and their own amazing new material. So it's that thing where you just think, oh, it's it's just... I don't even know that it's lazy. I I don't think it's lazy. I don't think it's malicious. It's sometimes it is. It's both of those things, but for the most part, it's just like, yep. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's just. I think there's a there's a real parallel to something else in in comedy that comes up a lot on the show, which is that you, as a new comic, you have an idea in your head of what a comedian is or does, and then you try to do an impression of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you see that in all the creative arts. You see that in actors. You see that. There are people that you feel like, they're just sort of doing an impression of acting. That's not actually act. That's not, I don't buy that for a second. An impression of acting is a really good way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. but the, here's the hard part. Very often audiences like that. 
I've realised that a lot. You know, audiences like to see the work. They like to see how hard you're working. So very often I think that with acting. I think that... Whereas for me, acting is about losing yourself in it and it feeling invisible and feeling feeling that the performance is invisible. And even, I mean, I've played a lot of very extreme characters, but I've always wanted them to feel they're born out of aspects of who I am. And then you work on that and keep those real bits as real as you can and just so that then the performance feels as real as it can be and just feels like, well, that's so integrated into you that you can't see, it blurs the edges. It's like a magic trick. It's like a brilliant magic trick when it works. And that's one of the things I've always loved with him acting and in magic is that, is that you don't want the audience to know when the trick starts. And that's the same with both of them. When magic and, and when acting really works, it's just a profound trick. A brilliant, amazing trick that can really affect an audience. And again, the similarities with comedy are immense because you, you some in that kind of in that sort of Derren-esque way of or that that whole style of mentalism where you ask someone a question and if you don't get the answer you want, you frame it such that you weren't looking for that answer. Mm. I think that definitely happens in comedy as well, whereby yeah. you you know a good MC will be generating you know good crowd work, something like Al Murray or yeah, yeah. Dara Brian will be kind of just throwing opportunities in the air to decide which ones to... Yeah. to well, your price. audience doesn't know where you're going. Your audience doesn't know what the story is. So that's your greatest ally, is that you can be writing the story as you go along and give them a different ending to the one you initially thought it would be. Having not created a horror movie before, was there a parallel whereby you needed to try not to make what you thought a horror movie should be? Well, no, we're, Jeremy and I are obsessed with horror. I've been obsessed with horror since we were 15, and that was one of the things that made our friendship... Um, that was one of our bonding things. So we literally, when we wrote Ghost Stories the play and then Ghost Stories the film, that was about... Ultimately, it was about creating the thing that we would that would make us happiest, that we would most think, oh, fuck, what?! You know, if you're in the theatre or in the cinema. So, no, we know what a horror film is. Backwards, upside down, inside out. I've seen a million. And I've got a thousand books on them. And, you know, I just adore it. I don't know why, but I do adore it. And Jeremy's the same. So it was only about creating the thing that we could leave that our you know, that would make us very happy to have out there forever. And that if our 15-year-old selves could go into a cinema and go see, that we'd think, God, that is, that's great. You know. I must, we must wrap up. I okay. have two, two more things to ask quickly. One is when you talk about the kind of the, the bleeding from the eyes period of the creative process, and yeah. um, something that is very much within the remit of this show is... The, the mental health implications yeah. of being a creative person, pitting yourself against the blank page or, you know, oh, God, this, we have to yeah. do 3,000 people eight yeah. weeks from here or we have to create, you have to create something where there was nothing. How have you coped with that? Well, that's a really good question and that's the question you should fucking start with, not finish with, because I think that that's true of every single creative, let alone, look, clearly for everybody. 
But within the creative arts, it's a massive question. I have been blessed with whatever my genetic chemical makeup is. It's all on the plus side. So I have never, thank God, had issues with that. However, where there are real difficulties are what you want out of life. Marrying what you want out of life with the realities of trying to live and work as a creative. Trying to live and work on being paid very little. Trying to live and work and have a family or a mortgage or eat out or go on holiday or raise your kids not knowing how you're going to do that. How you're going to do that six months from now. Now, the the techniques that I have developed for myself over the years that if I talk about this stuff I've tried to encourage others to do the first thing is to not focus you know it's so easy to focus on wanting to be famous wanting to be the biggest and the best and the winner because that's definitely part of what drives you when you start not everybody but you know, that's part and parcel of what it is. I'm going to be the funniest. I'm going to be, we're going to make the best horror film that's ever done. I'm going to win more Oscars than any actor's ever won. You've got to just fucking burn that because it's poison. And it's poison that can only poison you and kill you. The joy, you have to find the joy in, you've got something you love that is a, that's driving you to do it. And that will come at a price. That comes with sacrifices. Even if that sacrifice is you're the busiest, richest person and you've it's worked best than you can ever do, you're not gonna see as you're not gonna see much of your family. You can't book holidays because suddenly the thing that you're gonna do is they've moved forward three weeks and you're the reason it's happening and you've got so no matter where you are on that ladder, there are gonna be sacrifices. And you have to make try and make peace with that and try and see the good in that all the time. There's a great saying that um, that I that someone shared with me that had been through AA. And I put it, I've got a book called The Golden Rules of Acting, um, which is all little bullet points that I'd written for myself and it got published a few years ago. And it's basically doesn't, if you're not an actor, it's not about acting, it's basically how to live and survive and a lot of this stuff is dealt with but there's this great saying from AA which is never compare never compete and that's extraordinary I mean it literally is everything if you can do that and just try and find the peace in who you are and what you want to do and the joy in that that is the first I mean, like that's an easy thing to achieve. That's if you can achieve that, that's amazing. But that's one thing to aim for. The other thing I think we really have to train ourselves in is patting ourselves on the back. You know, I try, 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 and it's hard at times, but I try to soak up and remember great auditions, getting the phone call that says you got the job, going out and seeing, you know, those special moments, the moments that are victories. And replaying those again and again and again. And not in an arrogant way. And not in a mm. smug way. but in, Because if you don't, the option is you just play the stuff that makes you sad. 
And that's, again, it's not good. So you have, we have to, I believe we can retrain ourselves to do that. I think we can. I think you have to. Thanks, man. So that was Andy. Thank you very much to Andy for coming on the show. Thank you to Amy and Louise for their various roles in uh, sorting that out. And uh, I hope you will race to see Ghost Stories as and when it comes out. If it's already out, check your local press for details, by which I mean the device you have in your pocket, which counts as the local press these days. It's really worth watching. And I approached it in a very sunny middle of the day kind of way and went on to be properly clenched guts terrified. So, uh, and I I should say, (laughs) disclaimer, I scare easy, but uh, I really, really enjoyed it and very, very funny as well. So check that out uh, and listen tomorrow for uh, the second half, not exactly the second half, but a kind of a counterpoint interview, which is quite fun. The rhythm of it is really interesting because I've never before gone from one interview into another with like 30 seconds breath in the middle, but um, completely different, slightly similar in some ways with Andy's childhood best friend and now Hollywood movie type... Well, I don't know if they went to Hollywood to make the movie, but certainly movie co-creator Jeremy Dyson from The League of Gentlemen. So I will speak to you in that one tomorrow and soon in terms of internet time. But if you'd like to stick around for a quick post-amble, you can do that in just a moment. This completes the podcast for now. Speak to you soon. So this is a bit of correspondence to kick us off for a post-amble. This is from Harry, a South African living in Amsterdam. Uh, Today, I figured out that an upcoming work trip will take me to the UK just before the the McHuntleth Festival. The cat's out of the bag there, Harry. Uh, I got very excited, immediately booked tickets to a bunch of shows to make sure my wife and I will attend. You don't have to ask. Of course I booked for ComCom Redacted and your show. As I was scrolling through the lineup, thinking, yes, Sarah Pascoe, and woohoo, Simon fucking Munnery, I realised that I 100% owe this excitement to you. I first started listening, he continues, when I was still living in Cape Town three or four years ago. I couldn't watch 99% of the acts you interviewed, and while a lot of this comes down to some very dedicated listening, I figured I had to say a massive thank you to you for all of your podcasting. I reckon there's a little part of you thinking thanks for the thanks, but a donation would be nice. Exactly what I thought. I've just signed up for a monthly donation. What a bargain. Your work's been part of my weekly routine for the past couple of years, and apart from the interviews and comedians it's introduced me to... Harry, I've dropped the word rad there. You said rad interviews. I found it unnecessary. I've dropped it. (laughs) It's also become a strange, comedy-focused, slightly anxious, very enthusiastic alternative narrative trundling along next to my own self-development and recovery. It's weird how much you end up knowing about a person from weekly post-ambles and interviews. It's been a real pleasure. To the extent that I surprised myself when I felt a very real, very deep, empathetic joy when I heard you describe your pilot and its success. Whoa, hold on. Success in a very small measure on the night kind of a way, but I will accept that. Thank you. It's strange never having met a person to feel so deeply happy for them, but also very good. Fucking well done, man. You deserve it. Hopefully I can buy you a pint in Mac or whatever is suitable under these circumstances. Have an awesome day. Thank you, Harry. After reading that, I went on to have an awesome day. I I spoke a little bit last episode. I mean, thank you, first and foremost. I hope you don't think that's self-aggrandizing for me to read that out, but what a lovely email to receive. And I, I just... Thank you. I'm very proud and happy that you feel that way. And I'm very 